Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is spending 10 minutes or so with readers and book lovers from around the world, asking them what they're reading and what they'd recommend to anyone with a bit of time on their hands. Today I'm spending 10 minutes or so with, well, fantasy legend, one of my (laughs) all-time favourite writers, Raymond E. Feist, creator of The Magician, Midkemia, and so much more, who joins me from sunny California. Good morning, Ray. Good afternoon. <laughs> and how are you? How are you d- doing with uh, all of the madness see, I, of the I, world? My stock answer is upright and taking solid nourishment. So. <laughs> We've been at the podcast calling people around the around the world, talking about mm-hmm. what they're doing, and it does seem that that as a group, writers are somewhat well disposed to surviving in this, you know, sort of fairly reasonably. Uh, yes and no. I've talked to a lot of my uh, acquaintances, you know, Janie Wirtz, obviously, uh, and I, you know, basically bug each other on a semi-regular basis. And, you know, other other writers I've known socially over the years, now that we're all old and infirmed and don't travel, we rely on uh, Facebook and Skype and, you know, various and sundry social media. Um I think the thing about it is, is that in terms of our personal sense of well-being and safety, uh, a few of us have issues, you know, like being up in a mountain cabin and having to make the trip down to the village kind of thing. But for most of us who live in a suburban setting, it's fairly easy to stay socially isolated. And it's kind of what we do anyway. Uh, um, you know, I, I go to the store maybe once a week and, uh, and I have an amazing amount of things delivered. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, it's, I'm getting spoiled by, uh, you know, between Amazon and Uber Eats and DoorDash and other delivery, Instacart, other delivery services, you know, I could, I could spend the rest of my life never leaving this house, which I don't think is a healthy choice, but possibly necessary. And uh, all things being equal, which of course they're not, um, what does cause the problem is the associated stress of just being in the world when this stuff is going on, worrying about people you care about, you know, I have a son who's in a critical job. He uh, works for a company that does calibration on a variety of uh, instruments, including medical devices. So, you know, he's, you know, in his office uh, laboratory two, three days a week. But the rest of the time he's on the road. He just traveled uh, five and a half hours from where he lives in Massachusetts to a site in Pennsylvania and had to spend a, like an hour and a half, you know, doing whatever he does with calibration and then back another five and a half hours, you know? So it's that kind of thing. It's, it's the people we care about who are at risk. Uh, I have some friends who, uh, you know, are elderly. Well, I, I technically I'm elderly though. I'm, I lie about my age all the time. Um, you know, but I'm pushing 80, not very hard. I'm in my seventies. Uh, and all things uh, considered, I'm probably more painfully aware of the risk than I would have been 20 years ago or, or, or when I was younger, because the older you get, the less you're fantasizing about being bulletproof. So there's that sense of uh, anxiety, I guess, uh, that sense of awareness that things out there and also a bit of uh, alienation uh, on the level of it's never going to go back to the way it was, no matter how much we want it to. You know, it's, it's going to be different um, for a variety of reasons. Some of them good, actually, but uh, and then, of course, here in the States, we have the whole Black Lives Matter explosion since uh, George Floyd's death, which has amplified so many things. And something good may come out of this. You know, we may see some serious social reevaluation and change that's much needed and way overdue. Yeah. 
Well, let me ask you, though. I mean, one thing when I talk to people who are uh, forced to stay indoors is the, the simple fact of being required to stay in really can become a burden. And I'm wondering, like, how are you functioning in terms of, of reading, on, of writing, of, of just getting work done? Well, that's the other part. You know, concentration is an issue because you are constantly aware that there's stuff going on out there that could be dangerous to people I love. Um, and in that sense, uh, I was talking to Janie just last week, and uh, she was saying that everybody she talks to the same answer. It's hard to concentrate. I, I, I work in 10-minute bursts as opposed to the you know, 10-hour marathons I did when I wrote Magician. Now, yes, that was almost – that was 40 years ago, and I'm not that kid anymore. But by the same token, you know, it, it, it's you learn things as a writer, which I call writer's muscle memory. So the thinking about the story and imagining what will happen is just as consuming and just as demanding as it was when I was writing Magician. Uh, but once I sit in front of the word processor, how to get it done, that's the easy part now, relatively speaking. Yeah, you go back and you change things around and edit and all that. But but getting the story from brain to fingertips that's not an issue. The mind going like that, you know, at, at whim now, it's like I'll do 10 minutes and suddenly it's like, oh, I got to watch the news and see what's going on. Or I better call one of my kids or I better, you know, email one of my friends or it's it's constant interruption internally, I guess. And yeah. by that, I, 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 I think we're all going through it to some degree or another. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So let me ask you. This question then, we are all shut in, uh, we are reading and whatever else. So if I may, what are you reading at the moment? And critically, is it any good? Well, right now, I'm not reading a doggone thing, except uh, you know what I wrote last week. <laughs> um, one of the things that happened with age, and this is a very long involved explanation and realizing it's a short podcast, I will do the digest version. I was born with what they call a binocular dysfunction. And it's, uh, think dyslexia. That's neurological, mine is, uh, uh, well, it's also neurological, but it's a different, it's not the brain, it's actually the eye stalks. I, my eyes send messages at slightly different speeds. Mm -hmm. So all my life I've had to deal with, I couldn't catch a ball as a kid get smacked in the face, you know, I got it, bang, you know, that kind of thing. Um, once it was diagnosed, I was an adult, by the way. You know, yeah. I didn't get it diagnosed until I was in my late 20s. Uh, a whole lot of things start to happen, which made it easier for me to write. But one thing I've noticed in the last 10 years is I get eye fatigue faster. Yeah. So by the time I've worked all day long on a word processor, this distance, I want to watch something on the wall. So I turn on the TV, I watch the news, I watch sports, and boy, do I miss sports. And I'm sure everybody in Australia misses sports. You people are sports mad down yeah. there. And uh, for, little little digression. First time I ever stayed in a hotel in Australia uh, was in Sydney. And I turned on the TV and that was back before all the cable explosions. And it was like every state had one channel and you know, like seven was in New South Wales and 10 was in Queensland or the other way around or however it was. Okay. And I'm watching and it's Friday night and there's like four different ball games on, you know, like two rugby, one Aussie rules one, uh, maybe a soccer match, and then a dart tournament. <laughs> yeah. I said, who in the world broadcasts darts on Friday night in primetime Australians? Yeah. Anyway, so getting 
to that. Um, so I do that. Uh, the most recent book I read, I reread actually. It's it's a wonderful biography of Shakespeare called Will in the World by a gentleman named uh, Greenblatt, William Greenblatt. And it's brilliant because he takes a completely different approach to investigating uh, Shakespeare's biography. He, instead yeah. of uh, doing the usual stuff, he says, no, what do we know about the culture surrounding him? So he infers rather than deduces a lot of stuff. And like one example, the lost years that nobody know about. He builds a very persuasive brief that the reason we don't know about what happened was that he was secretly tutoring the children of rich Catholics. Okay. That's interesting. Who were, who were in hiding, you know, by being, of uh, being Catholics, that kind of thing. Um, now, I'm not saying it's, he's right, but boy, he builds a good brief. That yeah. was a wonderful book. And I, and I finished it for the second time about uh, two weeks ago. Um, I got a stack of two reads sitting in the corner of my office that are just ridiculous. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and assuming that I ever get my head right and start working again at the pace I was before, what I usually do is between books is when I go on kind of a reading binge. And... One thing, too, has changed. I don't read fantasy yeah. anymore. I mean, if somebody really strongly recommends something. But mostly I read biography and history. Yeah. I love historical novels as well. And the occasional guilty pleasure thriller, you know, you know, the. the, the Do you find that the historicals and, and uh, reading the biographies and everything else in some ways almost helps feed what goes into the fiction itself? Well, yeah, because, you know, I mean, I grew up reading what they call boys adventure fiction. So I, I grew up reading Conan Doyle, uh, the challenger stuff is more than the, the Sherlock stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Sir Walter Scott. And I mean, Ivanhoe is one of my all time favorite books. Uh, so, so, you know, that led me into the historical writers like Thomas Costain and Mary Renault and uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe, who was mostly known as a young YA writer, a young adult writer, or a children's writer, but she wrote a killer Arthurian called Swords of Sunset. And I really want to steal that idea because she wrote the entire story from Mordred's point of view. Mm -hmm. And that's a lovely book. Uh, and then I got into Thomas Costain's historical novels as well as his histories. And uh, yeah, I think my sense of world building to some degree is influenced by that heavily because I wrote uh, two books that I felt filled, you know, my ego exploded and I had to fill the void kind of thing. I wrote uh, Rise of Mercy Prince because nobody ever wrote a fantasy novel where they explained where the king got the money to pay everybody. <laughs> okay. And then I wrote uh, Shards of a Broken Crown because nobody ever explained after the Great War was one who cleaned up the mess. <laughs> Indeed, very true. So I guess that begins to segue into something else because you've talked about what you're reading in this time, I guess. So what are you working on? What's it in the world? I mean, it's been a long time since Pug left home. What, yeah, what, what's happening in the world of, of Raymond E. Feist? Well, what's happening with me is I'm uh, slogging my way through the third book in the uh, Firemane saga. And a slog is probably a speedy verb compared to what I'm really doing. I'm, I'm, you know, like an inchworm or a snail the pace. Um, you know, that first word isn't right. I, I, oh my God, I'm having a crisis. I should go get a drink, you know, and an hour later I go back and rewrite the first word. I'm hyper dramatizing it. But the point is, is that it really feels like a challenge to uh, get it. But when it comes though, that's the fun part. Yeah. 
So I'm writing the third book, uh, which is titled uh, Master of Furies. And it's a sequel to the book that's coming out next month, uh, Queen of Storms. And the reason I'm enjoying myself is that when I'm on my game, I think is the way to put it, my characters ignore me and just go off and do stuff. And I sit there going, okay, what the hell's happening next? Okay, let's find out. You know, I, uh, King of Storms, I mean, King of Ashes came about because literally I woke up one morning and it was one of those uh, lucid moments right before you're fully awake, but you're not asleep anymore. And I thought for a minute I was having a, a you know, transit ischemia attack or something because, uh, you know, I, I, you know, mini stroke. I, I thought, oh my, I literally thought I heard a voice say, who's the King of Ashes? Yeah, <laughs> and and when I came fully awake, I said, "Okay, if I'm not going mad, that is a hell of a good title for a book." Yeah, and uh, so, and so then, let me ask you: You've got uh, yeah, King of Ashes, Queen of Storms, Master Furies. I'm kind of curious. After all this time, has the way you think about fantasy changed? Has the way you approach the whole task of telling a story changed? Yes and no. I think I think uh, the audience has shifted its taste a little bit. So I mean, I I, I would love to blame blame George R. R. Martin because um, you know he's making more money than anybody except for J.K. Rowling's. Um, but George is a sweetheart. He's really a great guy. Yeah, yeah. And and a heck of a good writer. I have an autographed copy of Armageddon Rag sitting in my bookcase. <laughs> I met George thirty years ago, and. But, you know, the taste has more, is more mature, I would think. Uh, but the reader still wants that sense of wonder. That reader still wants yeah. that sense of otherness, that other place, other times, which is what originally drew me to historical fiction when I was a youngster. So in that sense, I think, uh, yes, the, the, the taste has changed a little bit. So I'd say, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, maybe the Rift War saga through the Chaos War saga was 5.5 on the adult scale, you know, naughty words and bad behavior. Uh, you know, maybe by the time I finished uh, uh, Magician's End, it was up to seven. Um, I'm probably 7.5 or eight now with the, you know, a few more four-letter words and a few more adult behaviors. And uh, and I still get email from fans who love it or hate it. So, you know, like, how dare you do this when I loved what you did before? Or, wow, this is the best review you've ever done. Can't please everybody. No, you can't. Do you look back at Magician and think that now it almost, in a way, uh, qualifies as a young adult by modern standards, you know, being that kind of story? Uh, yeah, especially Magician. Uh, it got a little darker with uh, Silverthorn and Darkness. Not by much, though. Darkness of Sethanon was still fairly much in the PG category, or maybe, well, I blew up a city, so maybe PG-13. Um, but yeah, Serpent War with Eric and Root, that definitely went darker. You know, there was a rape scene in there and uh, a, a lot of gratuitous death, you know. Um, so in that sense, yes. But uh, I would say by now, compared to what other people are writing, I'm still writing PG-13 stuff. You know? <laughs> compared to George, you know, yes, very much so. <laughs> I have a couple of, you know, references to sex and violence and other things in, in the the fireman saga but it's not overt and it's not you know gratuitous at least i hope it's not i i really think i had one guy who complained bitterly about how i how i quote normalized 
child abuse and pedophilia in uh, in King of Ashes. And I went, no, those things are normalized in the culture I wrote about. It doesn't mean I was suggesting this is the way people should live today. Yeah, yeah. And then I spared him the entire recitation on Victorian attitudes towards child crime and the fact that they treated him exactly like grown-ups. And the idea of teenagers is very 1950s to today and, and the evolution of social perception. What we're seeing right now before our eyes and what we've seen in the last two, three years with gay rights and now we're seeing it with people of color you know, life changes, values change, perceptions change. So I feel a little more freedom, but I also feel the same responsibility that I felt when I sat down to write Magician. Tell a good yarn, spin a good yarn, yeah. you know, uh, satisfy the reader and try to be upbeat more than downbeat. Try to be positive more than negative. You know, try to have the good guys win 51% of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're almost at the end, but I would, well, I feel like I have to ask a completely unrelated question since we talk about, you've mentioned a good yarn, it gives me a, an excuse. So you saw the Beatles at Chase Stadium? No, I, that's New York. I saw the Beatles at Dodger Stadium in LA. That was the second time. The okay. first time I was an usher at the Hollywood Bowl in 64 on their very first tour. I was the was... idiot in the back trying to get the girls to sit down so the people behind them could see. And obviously by the second song, everybody was standing up. <laughs> Quite an experience. Well, look, thank you so much for talking to me this morning, uh, Raymond. I really appreciate it. Master, Master of Furies will be out shortly. Queen of Storms is out now. They're in good, good bookstores, well, average bookstores, maybe even ordinary bookstores yeah, right now. Uh, we're, doing, we're doing a worldwide release. So in theory, it's supposed to be everywhere on July 14th. Well, now, then, if it's... If this, this podcast will come out a bit closer to then, so I, yeah. I will say to everybody, seek out a copy. And I just want to say again, thank you for making time to talk to me this morning, and thank you very much for the story. Hey, my pleasure, Jonathan. And uh, next time I'm in Oz, got to get together again.